This podcast is supported by VEPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by Peter Jewell, and this is the Planning Exchange Podcast. This is episode 67, and today we're going to be talking regional with Nick Vlahandrias from Mountain Planning. Nick is based in the wonderful town of Bright and covers all northeast towns, including Bright, Mansfield, Wodonga, Aubrey, Myrtleford, Beechworth, Rutherglen, Mount Hotham, Falls Creek, Dinner Plain, and many more. Nick is a statutory and strategic planner with over 16 years of experience in both local government and consulting. Welcome to the show, Nick. I have to admit, I'm very jealous. You have my dream job of moving to the high country and working amongst some of my favourite towns. Have you always worked predominantly around the Bright and Mansfield region? Uh, thanks for having me, Jess and Pete. Um, no, I haven't always worked up in the northeast of Victoria. I started at university in Melbourne, but my dream job was always around the Alpine area, and I was very fortunate that my first job out of uni was at Mansfield, and then I soon got a job in Bright. And Nick, do you want to tell us the differences in planning in a, in a regional town compared to the, say, the capital city and the larger cities in 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 our state? Um, Pete, I think the planning principles are still going to be the same, whether or not you're in a capital city or in a regional town. I think what is different, though, is the attitude that you need to have as a town planner working in a regional centre. You're going to come face to face with your customers and applicants and consultants more regularly than you would in the city. So you need to change your attitude when you work in a regional area. And Nick, what is the, what is the greatest lesson that you've learned as a regional planner? Have there been any tipping points in your career? Yeah, absolutely. So I had moved freshly out of Melbourne up to a regional centre um, coming across as a bit of a smart-ass town planner from city Melbourne and, and thought I knew everything. And you unfortunately can't have that attitude working in a small country town. So Never goes um, down I, well. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And so, you know, when, when I started off as a planner, I, you know, I was taught to implement the planning scheme to its fullest. And I wasn't taught that there was some flexibility afforded to you as a planner. So I, I impl- implemented it really rigidly and that didn't go down too well. So um, unfortunately, I, I actually had a couple of death threats at my first job. What? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I really quickly learned that that wasn't the way to do things in a small regional town. And was that from community members? Yeah, it was. So yeah, okay. uh, wow. one was one was an objector to an application and the other was an applicant. Um, and they were both completely different circumstances and uh, it, 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 it was just because people got caught up in the emotives of town planning and these people saw me out. We were at a pub. Everyone had had a few drinks and emotions got caught up in the heat of the moment. Now, I was big enough to walk away from those situations, um, but they're real confronting issues that you have working in a small town. 
And I bet that was really probably, um, you know, a massive learning curve for you very early in your career and probably shaped what you did and how you acted moving forward. Yeah, definitely. So I learned from that point that I needed to work more collaboratively with people. I needed to communicate a lot better and I needed to be a lot more flexible in how I implemented the planning scheme. And I needed to assist applicants further because people in regional Australia don't have the the same um, the, the same technology, the same information, and the same resources available to them that you have in capital cities. Nick, uh, being in small towns, you're part of the community, aren't you? Really, with um, and what I found working in rural areas is that a lot of people are connected through footy club, um, netball, church, uh, community groups, and there's a much closer network of connections. So you have to be really, you know, you have to be really um, aware of what you're doing all the time. You do. And so what I did is when I moved to a regional town for the first time in my life, I'd, I'd never lived in a regional town before is I started playing football and I started playing football for the first time. So I'd go to football training on a Tuesday, Thursday night and then play football on a Saturday and you start getting connected to these regional communities so, so quickly and you start to establish this great network of people in the community. So you end up then seeing these people at your work between nine and five, Monday to Friday. So you needed to make sure that when you were talking to these people on a Monday to Friday, it wasn't going to come back and bite you in the bum on a Saturday afternoon after you played football. Yeah, that's really, really hard. (laughs) And um, Nick, what are some of the misconceptions about rural planning? Is it all just hay sheds? Absolutely not. Uh, My workload is so diverse. And it's one of the reasons that when I talk to young planners these days at a university, I tell them not to work in metro areas and I tell them to come out to regional Australia. So my jobs vary from medium density housing, subdivisions, industrial, rural developments, um, even working on a couple of um, hydro power stations. Um, And then occasionally I get involved in some cool things like mountain bike projects and some alpine resort developments as well. Incredible. And so, Nick, you live in Bright in Victoria. Bright is obviously experiencing significant pressure from tourism. How is this impacting the community and what can be done to address these problems? So one of the greatest pressures we face at the moment is the influx of tourists into our area. And what that has resulted in is a greater supply of accommodation offerings. That then increases housing prices and it then also shuts down the permanent rental market. But yet we have quite a high... um, We have a high sector of our community that is employed in the hospitality industry. 
And these workers are then forced out of our town. They're having to live on the fringes of our town and even 30 minutes an hour away. So the, the greatest pressures that we have at the moment is affordable housing in a similar way to the experience in a capital city. And we're trying to work out how are we going to address that and provide affordable housing in towns such as Bright. And this is a fairly common issue with a lot of, um, even I know along the Great Ocean Road and those sorts of um, tourist towns, I know they have very, very similar challenges. So it is a significant issue. Um, I also wanted to ask you, I guess, about the bushfires that we had earlier on this year. And I, I know that Bright was fairly significantly affected by that. What has been, and it's probably, I think I know the answer to this question, given that we're currently in COVID lockdown, but what, what's been the follow-on impact of those bushfires on the township of Bright? So the impact has been uh, a loss of tourism. But I would also say that the impacts of bushfires have been insignificant in comparison to COVID. The bushfires shut us down for two to three weeks, whereas COVID has shut us down for even longer. Nick, the uh, one of the biggest public policy failures in the, in the country, I reckon. But moving on to um, the, the water industry, not, not many planners would know anything about the water industry and its interface with town planning. Can you just explain your involvement in it? Yeah, I've somehow managed to find myself working in this niche field of water extraction. Um, so I represent a couple of companies that specialise in water extraction around the country. And my role is more as a project manager for these developments, uh, not necessarily as the town planner. Uh, and that's because these projects are spread right across Australia. And I don't necessarily have the expertise to know the ins and outs of the statutory planning uh, ordinance in those states. So, so what sort of challenges are involved in water extraction? And excuse my ignorance, is it like tapping into tapping a bore into uh, a, a basin and to extracting water that way? Is that the sort of work it is? Yeah, so one of the things that I find myself doing quite often is actually educating uh, town planners and councillors on what the water you know, extraction industry does. And one of the things that the water industry does is it, it doesn't necessarily just tap into the water basin. There's there's different aquifers underneath the ground. And, and typically we find with water extraction for water bottling is that these bores go into the fractured rock aquifer. And it's typically an aquifer that is untapped for the likes of agriculture. So we spend a lot of time educating councils that the water that we're going to take is not in competition to agriculture. Not many people are using that water source. Yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of fake news and things, Nick, about different environmental projects. And I, I imagine water is, is one of those. Yeah, there is. And the chief scientist for New South Wales was actually appointed uh, to investigate the impacts of water extraction in the Northern Rivers area um, as a result of one of our applications, actually. 
Um, and the findings of that was that ultimately water extraction for water bottling has very minimal impacts on the environment. And water for water bottling simply doesn't compete with agricultural water use. In fact, the water used for water bottling is just 0.02% of the total allocation in Australia. Very interesting. I've, um, I haven't really heard much about water extraction um, personally, obviously working predominantly in um, Melbourne and CBD areas. It's, um, I imagine, though, this is probably an issue that you come up, come up against quite regularly with the types of applications and work that you're doing. Um, so, Nick, I also just wanted to move on now to talk about creating teams. Obviously, you've done quite a lot of work in local government and you've got quite a lot of experience in managing teams. What, what kind of changes did you make when you were in local government um, that helped create good teams? And, and what do you see as being the, the recipe for a good team? So what I focused on at the start was improving the culture of a team. Um, I, I find that with a lot of councils, it's uh, about doing things the, the same old way and just processing applications as normal. When I manage teams, it's about instilling a positive attitude into the team and being a little bit more proactive. And that's not to say that it's development at all costs, but working predominantly in regional Australia, I've learnt that you need to help people a lot more than you can get away with in capital cities. So it's educating the team that they need to be proactive, go that extra mile to provide some inf information to an applicant to assist them with their application because ultimately that's going to help the planner in assessing the application. And also improving relationships, I guess, as well mm -hmm. with, with the applicant and also with your colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to what I said at the start. These are not people that you're never going to see again. The person that you help at the counter at two o'clock one afternoon is probably going to be the same person that you see at 5.30 at night at the local supermarket. And it's going to be very awkward if you were not helpful over the counter. So it's in your best interest to be as helpful and as friendly as possible. And so, Nick, what happens or what's been your experience in these regional areas um, in terms of enforcement? Obviously, that must be incredibly difficult, um, particularly if you're enforcing matters on people that you see or that you know um, all the time. So how did you come, come up against that? Yeah, look, that is hugely difficult. And look, to be honest with you, for most regional councils, they don't have the resources to do enforcement. And enforcement really only gets done when multiple complaints have been raised. But I certainly have been put in the difficult position of enforcing matters and where it has jeopardised my safety. So one of the examples was I was the manager of uh, local laws as well and we had signs erected on a roadside. Um, we provided that landowner with numerous opportunities to remove those signs. Nick from... Um, 
my experience in enforcement in small communities, there's like two classes of people you typically work with. One is you know people who flagrantly break the rules and know they're breaking the rules, like native veg removal or something like that. And then there's the other side where the people um, probably are more challenged than many other people in society and, you know, like hoarders um, and people who um, don't have a robust, um, robust, you know, personalities or mental health. And uh, you have to be so delicate in those situations as well. Do you come across that sort of thing too? Yeah, and I have come across hoarders before, and you're right, you do need to be very delicate in your communications with them. And sometimes you do actually need to be a little bit more lenient with those people. And you need to think about the broader consequences and if that breach is really affecting other people. And that's where you need to make the decision to progress enforcement or not in a regional town. Yeah, I, I, I found, uh, Nick, that sometimes in those very delicate situations with, say, hoarders who have obviously got some issues, um, sometimes it's good to have the family members involved um, to, to you know, smooth things along. And, and that's, a, that's an, an ability you can do in smaller communities rather than you, you just wouldn't have that opportunity in big, big cities. And um, so getting back to your attitude about, the approach, you know, you're part of the community. A lot of planners in metro areas are probably a lot more adversarial to uh, applicants and things like that because there's not that personal link or there's, or that they're just hardened by a lot of day in, day out, uh, rugged behaviour by applicants and things where that that can't work in the country, can it? No, it, it can't. Um and and that's why you need to go that step further to to help people um, because these are also going to be mums and dads that have never done a planning application before. So you do need to assist them a little bit further. And like I said before, if you can provide them with that extra bit of information, it's only going to help you in the long run. It means that you're actually going to receive an application that, is compliant that has all the necessary information in it and that you're able to progress that quicker uh, than if you didn't help them thank you to song bowden planners who offer personalized service call dave song or dan bowden through details on our website also we thank victorian planning reports our very first supporter if you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Now, Nick, what, what in terms of technological improvements could you see as being implemented in planning teams to help streamline planning processes? Yeah, so this is one of my little passions and unfortunately I haven't been involved in any uh, technological advancements since I set up my company, but um, I was fortunate to work for a very progressive council a few years ago and they basically gave me free reign to implement some, some technology and that, that, that helped really 
greatly with uh, applicants in complying with different provisions of the scheme. But I think that there's this is probably one one spot or, or one uh, one one. Uh, sorry, um, this is probably one area where I think we haven't advanced in planning in Australia. I think that we should be able to use technology more in assisting us in looking at development outcomes. I mean, why can't we go to a site that is impacted by flooding and use augmented reality to see exactly where that flooding is going to appear on the land? And wouldn't it be great if we could stand there with the landowner and say, well, see where we're standing right now, we are underwater. And it gives people a better understanding of the environmental impacts that we're often trying to juggle. 100%. And I think, um, as you sort of alluded to earlier as well about um, bushfires, I mean, you could do a very similar thing in um, demonstrating to applicants what the bushfire risk might be on a particular site with, with that kind of technology. And, and I mean, it seems as though that shouldn't be too far away, really, with all the data that we have available to us now. Well, that's right. And I know that the CFA and the state government have some technology that allows them to predict fires. So why can't we take that a step further and again use augmented reality to show applicants and landowners that where they're standing on their site may be impacted by a bushfire. It then gives them a better appreciation for what a bushfire front is going to look like and how better to plan their site for their future dwelling or development. I agree entirely, Nick. The, the technology is, is probably there. It, all the things you describe uh, exist, you know, um, with the big data and um, the computer graphics and things like that. It's, it's the uh, commitment, I think, of the authorities to see it through. It is the commitment, and we, and we don't often see this enough from state government. Um, we see a lot of funding uh, pushed into strategy development, um, but I think we should be trying to make it easier for people to develop their land, and using technology is certainly a great way to assist in that manner. And Nick, with rural strategy plans, many councils have these, albeit a lot of them are generally you know, sometimes 15, 20 years old. Um, can we talk to the need for new thoughts in these strategies and the way that they're carried out? Do you have any suggestions in that on that front? Yeah, I've worked on a couple of rural strategies and they've been a real mixed bag, unfortunately. Um, some have been great and others I've found, well, there wasn't actually anything wrong with the planning ordinance. It was more a problem with how the planners were interpreting those provisions. But I think the biggest mistake that we make with these strategies is that it's quite often a, a blanket approach to our rural areas and we need to break it down because each of the rural areas is going to be distinct and different they have unique characteristics they've got a, they've got different environmental profiles so we should almost be using the structure planning approach to these small isolated rural areas and coming up with specific policies to address uh, those opportunities and constraints. 
Nick, I was doing work up on the <clears throat> on the Murray, and for our listeners um, uh, outside of Victoria and New South Wales, the the Murray straddles the boundary between New South Wales and Victoria, and it's pretty dry, and there's lots of irrigated areas up there, lots of irrigation fruit and things like that. And what's happened is a lot of the water rights associated with properties have been sold. And once the water rights go, the land is essentially pretty useless. Wouldn't you agree, Nick? Absolutely. If you don't have water, it's very difficult yep. to grow anything. Yep. And what, what a lot of people just walked off the land. A lot of them are small holdings, so they're not they're not substantial holdings. If they're large holdings, you can have dry farm dry land farming, which is pretty low and pretty pretty modest intensity. But when I was working on a strategy plan up there, Nick and uh, Jess, that there was no sort of avenues for environmental re- rehabilitation of those areas. And uh, everything was geared towards agricultural production. And there wasn't that sort of third way. Um, and I was just thinking, Nick, any thoughts on that in terms of it's, it's along the lines of you're expanding our scope with, and our thoughts with these things? What, what do you think? Yeah, there doesn't seem to be any incentives within planning ordinances for the rehabilitation of land. And we see that in Victoria as well with our native vegetation offsets. So you can have uh, uh, offsets via a third party on a property, but there's nothing in the planning scheme which actually incentivise you to lock away your land for native vegetation offsets. Well, and also, Nick, I was thinking with that smaller lots that – if you had entities that were, you know, conservation-based, you know, they could be private or, or community, and their task was to rehabilitate that land and, um, and stop the ferals, you know, whether the weeds, the animals, whatever, destroying everything. I, I just thought those rural strategy plans could have, have, have a broader vision, if you like. Yeah, and I've quite often argued the case for rural dwellings on land that's not suitable for agriculture on the basis of rehabilitation and maintaining land from weeds and vermin. And it's been accepted a few times by various councils, um, but quite often or not, the councils will require you to undertake agriculture, even though the land isn't suitable for agriculture anymore. Nick, that leads on to the next question, which is that <clears throat> rural areas have suffered you know, massive depopulation over the last century. And that's affected the local social infrastructure, such as the, <clears throat> the CFA. And for listeners outside of Victoria, that's the Country Fire Authority. You know, schools, sporting clubs, uh, welfare support groups, um, churches. Um, and that that depopulation is accentuated by, I, I call it the planning purists, who say you must have a certain number of hectares before you can put a house anywhere which is much like you're talking about before and I, I know from experience a lot of the people on the small blocks that little blockies they're the ones involved in the cfa the local footy club all the all the things and they work generally in the area as well um they could have a bobcat they could do this they could do that but you're 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 sympathetic to that approach of 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 not being so purist yeah definitely i, I don't use the 40 hectare rule when I'm looking at projects. Um, I look at the feasibility of a dwelling on 
small rural land based on the ability for some sort of agricultural use to be undertaken on that land. And it's, it's not purely based on land size. Well, well, well Nick, some, some land is just not suitable for agriculture. And we've got this situation where outside of the urban areas, pretty much all land is owned farming. And some of that land is on smallish lots and could be covered in vegetation and you wouldn't want farming in there. But, yep, thoughts? I agree. Like in those situations where land has been removed from agriculture, the surrounding pattern is not of agricultural use, then there has to be an argument for people to live on that land to manage the land in a better capacity than if it was left vacant. Nick, Nick, how do we educate city folk about <laughs> these these issues? Because it affects the social structure of those areas. Uh, and I know from experience, you know, a lot of people on the small blocks are, you know, the volunteers and do this and do that and basically underpin a lot of the the, the social scene. How can we educate people about that there's, this is a complex issue? It's not just uh, looking at a map and, and putting different colours on it. You know, I, I think that there's a, a real lack of consultation with regional practitioners. Uh, for example, every time there is a study done into the farming zone, not once have I ever been contacted to say, Nick, what are your thoughts? But yet I deal with the farming zone every single day and I can tell you that I probably get five to six phone calls a day from people out there looking for property wanting to build on vacant farming zone properties. It's a tough one because you've, you've got to give them the bad news, don't you? I do, and it's very rarely that I'll take on those projects just because it's so, so hard to get approvals. And look, I have had a bit of success lately. I've got um, two dwellings approved on sites ranging between two and six hectares, and these were very site specific uses that were proposed and what made the difference with those two applications was that my clients were absolutely genuine they really wanted to become farmers so much so that what i proposed for one of those applications to get it over the line was that council personalized the permit and that's how we ended up getting the permit now, Nick, I wanted to ask, um, this is probably a big question for you, um, is the rural environment in better shape today than 25 years ago or even 50 or 100 years ago based on current trends? What are the positives that you see and the negatives? Well, certainly in northeast Victoria, I think that we are in better shape. I'm seeing a far more diverse range of agricultural uses being undertaken on land. We've departed from your typical cattle grazing, sheep grazing, um, and unfortunately the dairy industry has almost closed up in our, our area. And we're seeing a lot more smaller niche bespoke agricultural uses. And that's actually complementing our tourism offerings for the area. So I think that has been a really great positive to come to agriculture in this area in recent times. 
Nick, I would have thought also that <clears throat> there's a lot more interest in sort of land care. There's a lot more awareness of um, native the, the 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 benefits, the great benefits of native vegetation. I would have thought also that you know the catchment management authorities have have, have worked progressively on improvements to water quality and the riverside environments. And I, I'm I'm very positive about the future. Uh, do you, and what do you think of the authorities' approach to all all those sort of things? Yeah, look, the CMA has been really great in educating communities on the benefits of revegetating land, um, assisting with funding. Um, I've personally uh, been uh, 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 had involvement with the CMA on my property um, with weed. But what's the CMA where you are, Nick? Uh, so we're Northeast Catchment Management Authority. And, and can you tell us a bit about what they do? You know, what sort of work they're doing that you've you've had into into interaction with so they're really good at educating landowners on the benefits of revegetation and protecting waterways so uh in my little waterway that goes through my property uh we've got uh, a number of willows and the cma came out instantly to provide some advice on what i could do with those willows chop, chop them down get rid of them <laughs> get rid of them right <laughs> Uh, that was the answer. Unfortunately, the creek that goes through my property is in my freehold, so they weren't able to provide me with any funding, uh, and the trees are about 35 to 40 years, so it's going to be a significant cost to remove them. Definitely. And now, Nick, what has surprised you most professionally in the last five years? Um, I think I'll get back to technology again and the lack of advancement. I've just, I'm, I'm constantly amazed that we don't have more technology available to applicants and councils to assist with streamlining planning permit applications uh, processes. I mean, I, I, I very rarely find a council that I can lodge an application online. And I just thought, think that that's one of the basic things that you need to have as a council these days, because that has benefits in terms of streamlining lodgement, but it also assists with minimising inquiries through the processing of an application you don't have me as the consultant calling you up every day to find out where an application is because i can simply log online to find out the status of that application definitely and then i think you know at the moment we've got some councils in victoria who are allowing online lodgement but then charging fees uh, for printing on their end which i still find bizarre <laughs> but i think i think that's a, a symptom of covid rather than anything else and that, that, Jess, that's an issue. And I think the Department of Planning, who oversee the planning in this state, and there's similar, with, you know, agencies in every other state. I think that they could set, you know, practice notes for these sort of things to, to make sure that everyone understands the framework and the rules and how you should operate and best practice and things like that. So you don't leave it to individual councils to make it up as they go along. What do you, what do you think, Jess? What do you think, Nick? 100% agree. Yeah, look, I agree. And, you know, we have a great little system here in Victoria called SPEAR, which is used for the online lodgement of subdivision applications. And I remember being involved early on about the possibility of rolling that out to planning permit applications. But I think it got all too hard because there was different vendors providing councils with their their planning permit application software and they 
the state government didn't want to ruffle any feathers. But I just thought that was the perfect opportunity to roll out a state-based system. It's funny you say that, Nick. I remember being involved quite early on. Um, I think I was, I must have been sort of fresh out of uni at the time and um, participating in some of the early workshops for that program. And, and you're right, I think it was, the, the intention was certainly to have planning applications included in on it. But I think that the, the thing that surprises me the most about it, though, is yes, it's great for subdivision, but the, the technology on that really hasn't changed significantly from 10 years ago. No, it's still largely the same platform and uh, it hasn't advanced much at all, unfortunately. Yeah, it's very surprising. Anyway, now, Nick, I also wanted to ask you, if you had six months paid leave to write a strategy on any topic, what would it be and why? Um, look, my passion is the outdoors. So I think I'd love to be involved in a strategy which investigates how we can utilise some of, some of our public land for further tourism uses. Uh, I think that they're underutilised. You know, I live in an area which has 95% public land, but yet it's largely inaccessible. So I'd love to be involved in a project that looks at creating these great multi-day hiking routes with cabins scattered through the bush or great big mountain bike loops and, you know, things like that. That's something that really interests me. Nick, we've, we've touched on that before, just getting private enterprise into some of those big public recreation zones to make it a more worthwhile or, or enjoyable experience and to attract people who otherwise would go in there. I, th I think your, th your thoughts on that, it's consistent with what you're thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, probably the number one inquiry that I get where I'm based is I want to do accommodation on my property. So why can't we spread that out a little bit further afield and provide some remote accommodation offerings up in the mountains, uh, places where people have to hike and ride to get into them, to give them a broader nature-based experience. I think it's something that's really lacking in Victoria. And I think, I mean, that's certainly something that Tassie seems to have done really, really well, in my view. I mean, certainly um, some, of the, the, some of the hikes um, that I've been involved with over the years, you know, the accommodation up there is sensational. And again, it, it, it seems as though the environmental impact of those has been really well considered and, and very minimal. Yeah, that's right. And we, we see them uh, in Europe as well, where you've got these uh, huts scattered throughout the Alpine area. And again, I think it's something that we should adopt here in Australia more broadly. I mean, Nick, how do we, how do we get these changes made? And that's the thing that drives me a bit nuts because there's, there's, there's ready people wanted to do that sort of thing, but there's just this inertia at state government level, and that's where it is. I'm sure most councils would love to support that sort of thing. You're right, they would. I just think, again, it's a matter of um, Melbourne controlling what happens in our regional Victorias. Uh, I mean, I, I reached out recently when I heard about some accommodation proposals in Mount Buffalo. And uh, I'd sent off a few messages to say I'd love to be involved. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I live here. I, I, I do this work every single day. And I didn't get one return message. Yeah, that's a real shame. So, Nick, just, just um, we've come to the end of our interview now, but 
in this day and age, it's obviously quite rare to experience peace and calm. How are you finding this space at the moment? Um, I've actually really enjoyed isolation, to be honest with you. I mean, it's uh, the reason why I moved to regional Victoria 21 years ago was to get away from the hustle and bustle of Melbourne. But um, I escape by jumping on my mountain bike and heading off into the mountains. And that's what you'll find me doing every afternoon at about three o'clock when I finish work. I will simply jump on my mountain bike by myself with my trail dog in tow and head off into the mountains. Sounds very idyllic. <laughs> Nick, that's a lovely... I'm very jealous. That's a lovely thought, Nick. <laughs> um, now, <laughs> now, Nick, we've, 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 with our podcast Extra, we ask our guests what they've been reading, watching, listening to, or experienced that has given them joy in recent times and hopefully pass, pass on a tip to our listeners. Any suggestions for our, our listeners? So I don't do a lot of reading or watching TV. Um, I'm, I, you'll find me relaxing by just being out outdoors. But if I am confronted with the task of sitting on the couch and watching TV, then what I've been watching recently is a show on Nine now called Alaskan Bush People. It's a family of nine that live off the land in rural Alaska, trying to build a house. And it's not as easy as you would think. Jess, sounds the sort of thing you'd like to watch. Um, <laughs> what, what, Thanks, Pete. <laughs> what, what, um, what have you been, what have, what's interested you lately, Jess? Well, I was just thinking we should probably have, um, have changed that question for Nick because <laughs> quite clearly he was always going to have an interest in the outdoors, knowing what we know about him. So... <laughs> Anyway, um, what have I been listening to? Um, I haven't been listening to much, really. I've been doing a bit of reading. Um, I've just started a new book for book club, um, which is Boys Swallows Universe by Trent Dalton. Um, I can't say I'm particularly enjoying it so far, but <laughs> my... Get rid of it. <laughs> no, of I've, it, I've, I've got to finish it for, for book club, so I'll um, try and get Go through on. that in the next couple of weeks. But, look, it's it's not grabbing me so far. <laughs> Hopefully I can provide an update at the next podcast and hopefully I've finished it. And hopefully it gets better. What about you, Pete? Well, I, I, I chanced across a book called Human Hovel Expedition Termination by Lance Pritchard and he's a citizen historian and <clears throat> intriguing because he's, he self-published this book. He went to the State Library and saw a map of the 1824 expedition from Sydney down to Melbourne to Port Phillip. And he realised there was a disconnect between what the established history was of where the expedition went and their maps. So he, he set out to prove that the accepted wisdom of the expedition, where they came out on the bay uh, at, at Little River and Hovels Creek, was not actually right. It was actually at Werribee River. And <clears throat> I, I read I read the book in a night. It's not it's not that long, but about eighty pages. But I then went to Hovels Creek and, and explored that on the bike and the trail. So I just want to give a shout out to the amateur historians out there who take on conventional wisdom, dear old Lance Pritchard, and and just set the record straight. And no one's encouraging them to do it. They just have this sort of be in their bonnet. And I think it's great to have that knowledge of local history and 
And once you understand your local history, you just get such better feel. You'd agree with us, Nick, for the for the environment in which you live. Absolutely. Now, I don't read a lot, but that is a book that I think I'd love to read. Well, if you do read it, Nick, you'll you'll end up like me on a, on the bike on the bike trail going down Hovel's Creek. It, it's, it's misnamed because Hovel actually never went there, but um, they they went to Werribee River, but. It's just that, and reading the early explorers' description of the landscape and and their their struggles, um, you know, lack of water, this and that, and and it just makes everything, it makes the environment so much more, you know, it's more country. I get that. I'm sort of getting that uh, understanding. So, Nick, I'll I'll send it up to you up in the bush. It should get to you in about two weeks. I'll send it up to you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, thanks, thanks, dear listeners, for uh, listening to our podcast in your busy lives. And it's always a great pleasure. We're a part of the Urban Broadcast Collective, great network of podcasts. Please listen to that on SoundCloud. But Nick, you've been a wonderful guest, and um, I can't wait to hear all your old footy stories. And Jess, always great doing podcasts with you. So thanks, Nick, and thanks, Jess. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Nick. You've learned a lot today. Thanks, Jess and Pete.